What does it mean to become a Christian? Often that. So you'll see that as we go through this in faith. After receiving instruction in the faith, I should be baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, thus joining His body, the church. If I have already been baptized, I should confess my sins, seek the guidance of a minister, affirm the provinces made at my baptism, and take my place as a member of the church. We wanted this to actually be, be a rather broad ecumenical document, so it just uses minister here, which, you know, as Anglicans we mean priest or deacon or, or bishop even. Um, but, but consider this for a moment. In coming to repentance and faith, um, the very first thing that someone ought to do is, is prepare to be baptized. Um, think about, uh, in the Acts of the Apostles, the, those hearing Peter's uh, initial sermon on the day of Pentecost, what do they say? Well, what, should, what happens to them? It says they're cut to the heart, and they say, what do we do? <laughs> this, so there's a, this is really an, an amazing thing. They're cut to the heart with repentance and faith, and, and they ask a really key question, which is, what do we do about that? It's not thought, oh, great, we're Christians. Like, like That's not it. It's, what do we do? Um, and, and the answer given by Peter is what? Repent and be baptized. So repentance and baptism, as I said last week, always go together. Um, when we think about baptism, and many of you grew up in traditions that did not baptize babies, some of you did grow up in traditions that baptized babies, and there's a, there's a major fault there, which I think can be remedied easily, um, and that is to say that when we think about baptism, okay, when we think about it theologically, we should never put out of our mind the idea of an adult convert to, to the Christian faith who, who comes to repentance and faith and is baptized. Okay. Um, if anything, we should think of the infant as a kind of um, exception to that general rule, that it's adults who are baptized. <laughs> They're the ones who come to repentance and faith and are then baptized. Um, so I want to make that really clear. But I also want to make it clear that in the ancient church, and indeed in Anglicanism, repentance and baptism and coming to faith are not able, those, those ideas are not able to be extracted one from the other. All three go together. They, in fact, they go in here, right? I mean, indeed, I would ask the question, how can you repent unless actively living by the Holy Spirit? Can you? No, you can't. Uh, how, is it that you can uh, how is it that you can live a life of lively faith without being baptized into the very center of that faith, um, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Can you? And I say the answer is maybe, but, but, but maybe isn't good enough, is it? <laughs> we want certitude. We want... We want and, and I would put it simply, we want uh, that sacramental assurance. We, we, and, and in fact, God gives it to us. And if you read the New Testament, you'll see that, right? That, that to be one who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, who is, who is living a life of repentance, is to be one who has been baptized into his body. And that's what it says. I should be baptized into. What are you baptized into? Water? <laughs> or what? You're baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus. Where, well, Tell me where that is in Scripture, Father Nelson. I'd like to know. <laughs> and the answer is, it's Romans chapter 6. As many of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized also into his death. Um, and if you, have been, if you have died with him in a death like his, you will certainly what? Be raised with him in a resurrection like his. To be baptized means to be joined to Jesus Christ. Um, this is actually the Christian life in miniature. It is you're joined to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, and therefore you're living the life of the Trinity, the living the life of the triune God. Um, joining his body, the church. How do you join Jesus' body? By being joined to his body in his death and resurrection, which the, the, the church is, if it's anything, um, the, 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 the risen body of Christ, um, raised up to newness of life. I mean, we often forget that when you just sort of think, oh, you know, isn't it great that we kind of agree about some things, a few things, and <laughs> like, like that, that is not the church, okay? Um, that's a very uh, prominent American idea about what makes the church, is that it's just this body of people who happen to agree about certain things, um, but it's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that the church is, is made and indeed remade uh, through these prime sacraments, the, the, the baptism, being ba joined to Jesus Christ in baptism, and as well being joined to Jesus Christ through the Eucharist, right? Continually made and remade. Um, if I can go off on a bit of a tangent. The church isn't just an organization that you join and unjoin. It's an organism. Um, and that organism has to be fed, it has to be nourished, it has to be 
it, it exists because God wills it to exist, right? not because we will it to exist. Uh, and, and in that sense, um, when we speak of what the church is, we say it's the body of Christ. Um, and, and quite simply, it should be said that, uh, that the life that the church lives is a divine life. Now, if you, haven't, if you have already been baptized, what do you do? This is important. You confess your sins. You seek guidance. And how can I, how can I um, in a sense, get back to this life that was given to me so many years ago? Um, affirm the promises made at my baptism. That's why we, uh, at Christ Church, we, we actually uh, re-express our baptismal promises four times a year. We do it at Easter, we do it at Pentecost, we do it on All Saints Sunday, and we do it on the Feast of the Baptism, which is uh, the Sunday following uh, January 6th. Why? Because for us, this baptismal life is not just something that's one and done. Oh, I was baptized way on back 30, 40, 50 years ago, and wasn't that great, and uh, you know, it's done, done, done. No, it's an ongoing thing that's to be renewed regularly. Um, So we give that opportunity, and... uh, well, we'll, keep, we'll do it again, but uh, you'll note, after we do that, the priest goes around with holy water and, and just flings it at you. Why? It's, it's to be reminded of that baptism, right? It's not baptism, but it, it's a reminder of that baptism, that you have been, you have been washed of sin, um, you've been made a new creation uh, by God's grace. Um, and to take my place as a member of the church, um, now, what would we say about someone who's baptized as an infant and, and a separate? You might, you might just be apostate, right? I mean, that might be the state. But, but to take your place as a member of the church means uh, to, to go back to, uh, for instance, the rock from which you were hewn um, and, 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 and buy into it again. Um, and I should say this as well, you know, every Christian uh, backslides. <laughs> every Christian, right? And it may be that you grew up in church and it's like, oh, the backsliders. Well, no, we all do, right? What's, what's, what's to happen when we do? It's right there. Confess sins. Seek guidance. Take our place as members of the church. right? And it happens over and over and over and over and over again. Because here's the thing. The thing that made you what you are can't be, done, can't be redone. Right? Uh, you know, to, to be rebaptized... I think the Anglican tradition is very strong about this, but the Catholic Church as a whole is, is strong in this, is to say, to be rebaptized would be to try to re-crucify and re-raise Jesus from the dead. It is a thing that has happened. It cannot be revoked. It's there. Um, and thanks be to God that, that people will often wander very, very, very far. But we can say all the more that God through His Holy Spirit is drawing you back and is working, working even if you're working against Him, is working. Um, question 15, what does God grant you in your new life in Christ? God grants me reconciliation with Him, forgiveness of my sins, union with Him in Christ, adoption into His family, citizenship in His kingdom, new life in the Holy Spirit, and the promise of eternal life. I love this. I think we went over this a little bit last week. This, this is, if you want to know who, who wrote this, this is, this is Jim Packer just sort of holding forth with this incredible memory of Scripture and just basically telling you what is part and parcel with new life in Christ. Well, what is it? Reconciliation. What does reconciliation mean? Any Latin people around? Anyone know Latin? (laughs) Uh, It means to be with again. There's something about sin which separates us. You know, we've talked about this for the last several weeks. Uh, that separates us off, alienates us from God. It even alienates us from ourselves. It alienates us from others. Um, and, and what God does in the work of redemption and giving us new life in Christ is he reconciles us to himself. Um, and note, there's a scripture reference for every one of these. Uh, forgiveness of my sins. What does it mean to forgive a sin? These ideas go together. Forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, I've said this in the past just with you all. Um, Steve Waters, who's a member of our church who, uh, who does Bible translation professionally, uh, was telling me that in, in the Tibetan language, forgiveness is the same word as letting a fish off the hook. And I just love it. Think about it. I could kill you. I could eat you. I could destroy you. But I'm not going to. We make that decision. 
Um, even if reconciliation doesn't happen, that's what forgiveness is. It's a, I'm going to let you off the hook. I'm going to let you live. I'm not going to own your butt. Does that make sense? Like, I'm going to let you go. You are free. Um, that's a wonderful thing. Um, and, and, and to be forgiven, as a Christian means, that, that, that we're not sort of held to the standard of we must pay for our sins. Because what God has done is He has decided, I'm going to take the pain. I'm going to eat the loss. Uh, and maybe you've been in that position before where someone's owed you money and you've had to just say, I'm going to eat this. Because there's no way you're ever going to repay it. More likely you've been in the position of owing someone money <laughs> and, and that you've had to say, please, please, please just forgive it. Um, uh, this happens often. In fact, when I was, when I was, in, uh, when I was in business school at A&M, uh, one of the most shocking things that I discovered in, in looking at finance and banking was how often banks will just cancel debts. Here's what they realize. And I was amazed at how often it happens. Here's what they realize. They realize that it's more painful to them to chase you for money that you cannot pay and will not pay than it is to not do that. And so what do they do? They say, don't let it go. It's worse for us if we go after you. And, and I think that's generally true, right? <laughs> Although it will often be worse. The pain of forgiveness, if we forgive someone, is worse often. Um, it involves a kind of sacrifice. Union with Him in Christ. This is what is spoken of in Romans chapter 6. That we're buried with Him in baptism and raised to newness of life is at the heart of the Gospel. I mean, it's to say that, you know, there's a reason that we went with an image of the resurrection in the very center of the view of the people of Christ church. Everyone, right? Everyone looking to the resurrection. Because this is our identity, is as a people who have died and have been raised to newness of life with Christ. Um, a people whose life is hidden with God in Christ, as, as Paul puts in Colossians. Um, adoption into his family. This is a big one. This is, this is where the sinner, who is by nature an, an alien, not like green, little green men alien, but, but one who is cut off from an identity, is welcomed into the family, given the family name, given the inheritance, given all the things that are there. Um, Paul uses language not only of adoption, and Jesus used the same language, uh, but also of inheritance. Adoption goes with an inheritance. Um, have any of you ever gotten an inheritance? No one? Not a single one of you has gotten an inheritance? Oh, goodness. Well, you ha maybe you have something to look forward to then. Uh, I once got an inheritance, and it changed my life. It, it fundamentally changed my life. I went from having debts to having no debt. I went from... Uh, not owning a house to owning a house. I went from, uh, from having all kinds of pressures on my life to having not so many. <laughs> um, it was an unbelievable thing. I thank God for it. Um, in fact, uh, my cousin and I received this inheritance, same amount, all the cousins did. And, uh, and two of us are priests. And two of us have gone and done church planting. And part of what made that happen was my atheist grandmother leaving us money. And God used it right, to do amazing things. Right? So, so I'm saying this to you that, that as Christians, we have an inheritance that is so great and so vast that we could not possibly imagine it. Paul uses the term riches, lavish riches. Okay? Um, and so, so we, we're reminded of that. Well, where does it start? In the resurrection of Jesus. Look, look to that image. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderfully constructed. Um, but but what's, he, what's he got on his shoulder? You can answer. It's okay. He's got the cross. Meaning exactly what the colleague says. He's taken the, the instrument of painful death and made it to be a, a sign of salvation. Um, so, so this is the inheritance, this, this wonderful way of, of dying and being risen Again, and it's, and it's given to us personally. Um, citizenship in his kingdom. So uh, through the years, I've visited people who are nationless in Palestine, northern Iraq, 
people that do not have passports. Why don't they have passports? They can't get one if they wanted one. Because they, they're nationless. They do not have citizenship in anything. So they can't travel because they don't have identification. They can't, they, they're stuck where they are. Do you realize that right now, this is, this is an amazing image of, of, it's kind of an amazing image of the gospel. Bethlehem, right now. Bethlehem is in the West Bank, in Palestine. There are people who have spent their entire life now in Bethlehem. They have never left. They're, they're prisoners in their own city. They can't get passports. They can't do anything like that. They're stuck right where they are in Bethlehem, the place of Jesus' birth. They're just stuck there. They're nationless. Because no matter what anybody says, Palestine is not a nation. They, they, can't, they can't go anywhere. They're stuck. And, and the, the realization which you should have is, if I was not a Christian, I would be in the same boat. Stuck. Nationless. No one owning me. No one, I mean, do you, can you imagine for a moment what it's like? I mean, when we travel, if you've ever traveled internationally, you know that you know that you know that you know that you know you can make a phone call to the American embassy and they will pick you up. Right? If you're in, if you're in jail in who knows where, right? Um, maybe Tijuana, maybe like who knows what. You're, you're in jail, right? You can call the American embassy and they will do something about it. It's an incredible comfort. If you're nationless, if you have no citizenship, you don't get that. Um, it is, it's an awful thing. So what does God do? <laughs> he grants you citizenship in His kingdom. Meaning, meaning that all the benefits of that kingdom are yours. Um, in, the, in the days in which the New Testament was written, citizenship was actually a rare thing and not a common thing. Um, to be a Roman citizen was strange. It was something that you had to pay for. It was something that you either had to inherit or pay for, and, and very few people had it. And when Paul speaks of citizenship, knowing the cost of his own citizenship, he knows what the cost of this citizenship is, and he speaks in an elevated way about it. Um, once you were no people, now what are you? God's own people. New life in the Holy Spirit. Um, if the old life is characterized by stuff like what? Go ahead. Death, misery, sin, pain. Uh, uh, you go on down the list, right? Uh, resentment, anger, uh, uh, envy of others. The new life by the Holy Spirit, working by grace to bring about this new life in us, is, 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 is everything else. I mean, it's often a really good image to, to bring up. Think about the difference between the people of Israel in bondage in Egypt and their experience there, and what that new life in the, in the kingdom, in the promised land, was to be like. Before, they had been told what? Make bricks without straw. There was never enough. I mean, they, they apparently liked the food because they complain about how they don't have leeks and fish, you know, later on. But, but it's nothing like milk and honey. Um, there's a difference. Now, do we always reflect this new life in the Holy Spirit in our own lives? Oh gosh, <laughs> it's just, it can be a disaster, right? But, but what are we being drawn to? I mean, this is something that so many people have lost. So many people have lost, and it's tragic. New life in the Holy Spirit is meant to be the life of holiness. A life of sanctity. Um, a life in which, uh, in which our desire for sin tanks. Um, a life in which uh, our old desires and our old kind of you know, fleshly habits fall. One by one by one. Um, how do you do that? Well, you confess your sins. You seek guidance. You do those things. Um, if you try to do it on your own, you're going to fail. Finally, the promise of eternal life. Do you see how glorious this is? This is not a gospel of just eternal life. I think so often that's what's preached in our churches is, you believe this, you get to go to heaven when you die, and isn't that wonderful? The gospel, the gospel is much more than that. Much more than that. 
And that's why all these things are included. The, the goodness of reconciliation, the goodness of forgiveness, uh, the goodness of union with Him. And, those, and those, the ends of those things are not just eternal life in heaven. What are they? A life of holiness and a life of, of, of joy here, now. Question 16. What does God desire to accomplish in your life in Christ? God desires to free me from captivity to sin and transform me into the image of Jesus Christ by the power of His Holy Spirit. Jesus speaks so much in the Gospels about what it, is, what it means to be set free. Paul goes on at length about what does it mean? It is for freedom that what? It's kind of an obvious little... It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Kind of like, you think? Yeah, it is. <laughs> but it's so obvious that it has to be said like that. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Um, what does this freedom mean? Is it kind of egalitarian freedom in the French sense? Liberté. Egalité. <laughs> no. What is it? Yeah, it's, it's freedom from sin. And we're freed to serve Christ. That's exactly it. Um, to, be let, to, to be able to be let go of this hold that sin has upon us. Um, and, and we're freed for, not freed from. Okay? That's a, another way to put it. To transform me into the image of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say this until I'm blue in the face. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means that you and I were made to be like Jesus. And what is it that Jesus is doing right now? We forget this. We think, oh, you know, Jesus rises from the dead, and then there's this ascension thing which is super weird, and I can't quite understand it, and what happens then? Sometimes you don't even... Was there an ascension? We lose the thread. What happens? We say it every Sunday in the Creed. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Where he does what? Yeah, he lives and reigns, right? And will come again. Uh, so what does he do right now? He, he is at the right hand of the Father, and he prays. He offers intercession for the church. Um, he also pours out his life before the Father. Um, he is constantly making a gift of himself to the Father. Um, and, and that's what we're made for to live in glory. Um, and so to be transformed in the into the image of Jesus Christ means to be restored to that glory. Now, does it happen like that? Sometimes. Sometimes it happens like that, but a lot of the time, most of the time, it is a long slog. Um, I've known people through the years who were just like, boom, I'm done. Like, transformed. Formed, like insane. I've also known most people done work like that, right? And in fact, for the people who are transformed, they usually go through this really rough patch at a certain point, like, oh, there's a letdown. Uh, but, but, but hear me on this. It takes a long time. It takes a long, long time. Um, we have, we have, we've had several parishioners through the years who bought houses and moved into them before they'd been fully renovated. That's happening right now in several places. It's happening in my house, right? It's a lifetime project of renovation. It takes a long time. But how does it happen? Because of my power tools? I'm being funny here. Because of my bootstraps, whatever those are. I don't even think we know what those are anymore. What? The power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of God working in us to bring us to this salvation and to this redemption and to this renovation and to this holiness of life. Um, and we can't forget that, right? That, that our, um, our problem in this life is not a lack of will and motivation. What is it? We need grace and we need it in abundance. And grace is probably the most often misused word in American Christianity because it usually just means let it go. It usually just means like God knows you're a mess and he's just going to forget that. Is that what God does about sin? Yes. What else does he do? He grants you power. 
grants you the supernatural ability to be altered and made holy. There's a wonderful phrase in you know, 12th, 13th centuries uh, that kind of sums up a lot of the theological thinking in that, which is grace perfects nature. It draws us to perfection. It doesn't just sort of overlook it. It says, we want, to, we want you to be transformed. Um, and that's what grace does. Um, in fact, if you, if you do a little word search in the New Testament, you'll find that grace is actually used in that way. That the riches of God's grace are given to Christians so that they can live as God intends. Right? Which is not a kind of like, I'm just going to forget for a moment that you're a sinner and, and that's it. No, God wants real transformation and will get real transformation by the Holy Spirit. By what means will God transform you into the image of Jesus Christ? We've been asking this question. The first Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Following this pattern, I will be transformed within the life of the church through reading Scripture and receiving the sacraments, through worship and prayer, and through fellowship with God's people and loving witness to the world. I love that, that phrase. Um, it happens immediately after uh, those hearing that sermon on the day of Pentecost at the at the foot of the steps of the temple, um, where ritual washings would take place in those days, and where they did on that day in, in the form of baptism. The first thing that Luke, tell, Luke's the writer of the Acts of the Apostles, by the way, first thing he wants to tell you is what they did, what they devoted themselves to, what they took seriously. And he says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Okay? So there's first, the teaching of the apostles, the teaching of the gospel, the teaching of, of the Christian life. What is it that Jesus says to the apostles as he's being ascended into heaven? Right before? Matthew chapter 28. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. So the apostles are, are to teach us to be obedient to the faith. Okay? Um, and that, that work continues down to this day. And the fellowship. What is Fellowship. Did like fun and games down in the church hall? Did, like potluck meals? Yeah, some of that. But it's actually, it's actually uh, there's a little bit of an interesting thing here. Is it, is it the apostles' fellowship? Yes. But it's also just the fellowship of Christians. And we speak of this in the creeds, by the way. Um, this is actually what we mean by saying... Uh, um, uh, golly, the, the word's escaping me right now. Why? I'm drawing blank. Um, well, the word communion. The communion of saints. Yeah, there it is. I got it now. You, thank you. You bailed me out. The communion of saints. What does it mean? Well, it means a fellowship of people who partake in holy things and who are made holy. There's a, there's a grand debate in, among historic, uh, historical theologians as to what that means. Does it mean the fellowship which the saints have one to another? Or does it mean the fellowship of those who partake in the holy things of God? And as an Anglican, what should I say? Always. It's a great B word. Both. It's both. It's all of that. Yes. <laughs> like, that's what it is. Right? When we say we profess faith in the communion of the saints, we mean that we have a communion of saints going back forever that, that is a community of holy people engaging in holy things. Right? That's a wonderful gift. Um, to the breaking of bread, what's being referred to here? Let's all go buy a loaf of bread and break it together. Yeah, true. No, that's there. It's definitely true that this is referring to having, uh, having feasts together. Um, one of the things I want you to see through catechesis is that actually what we do on Sunday mornings has its historical moorings as a meal. Like a real like meal with lots of food. But also this, uh, this ritual element referring to the Eucharist. And through the years, and actually early on in the church's history, those were abstracted uh, for good reason. Right? Paul makes reference to this, that there are some people who are eating and getting drunk, and they're eating to their fill, and others are going away hungry, and that's not good. So what do we do? What does he say? Do you not have homes that you can eat in? So what's the immediate trajectory of the New Testament? Eat your meal at home and come to this far more ritualized uh, uh, meal, the Eucharist. Right? That happens very early on with good reason. Um, so, so I want you to, want you to see that, that, that the very earliest moorings of the Eucharist are a meal, right? And there have actually been movements 
uh, in the church that have that have tried to get back to that in a certain sense. Um, um, very very active, very interesting movements. Um, but but that's that's all there. What's at the heart of this phrase "breaking of bread"? I think is this this breaking of bread that that Jesus remember. On the road to Emmaus, he breaks bread with two disciples, and what do they do? What does it say about this experience? He was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Of course, Jesus says this. He said this on the night before he was crucified. He says, "Do this in what remembrance of me." And this is not just sort of like, "Oh, I remember." No, it's not that. It's to know again. Jesus is known and made continually known through the breaking of bread in his body, the church. Um, and and that's, that's an essential part of it. We're going to talk more about that as it goes forward. Um, and the prayers. The church is a praying body. Why? Remember what I said about the ascension? Jesus Christ has a praying body at the right hand of the Father. And to be his body means that we will be a people of intercession. And that's why the church has always taken time for intercession in the liturgy. One of the most ancient portions of the liturgy that we can't even find a time when it wasn't there was a, was a time to stop and make intercession. Um, in fact, I would say this, you know, at, at Christ Church, we do something which had sort of fallen out of fashion with, with Anglicans, but, but we stand up at the prayers, Right? We finish, you know, we, we stand up for the creed, but we also stand for the prayers. So if there's no creed, which often happens at weekdays, you know, we still stand for the prayers, right? Why? Do priests pray sitting down? Do they pray kneeling? Is that priestly prayer in the, in the scriptures? If you read the Old Testament, you'll find that, that what happens when a priest goes into the, into the sanctuary of God is he stands. Why? This is a great thing. He's boldly standing before a holy God. That's one thing. Um, it takes guts and courage to do that, by the way. I mean, because part of the understanding the Old Testament has is that God could just strike you dead in the midst of the temple. That'd be it. So might as well be standing instead of sitting for that. <laughs> um, at least we'll hear the thud of your body as you, as you die, and then we can come get you. <laughs> um, but there's another reason. You can't very well make a sacrifice of your whole life before God sitting down. You have to stand. So God's people, this is why we pray the prayers of the people standing for the world and for the body of the church. We pray it standing um, and not kneeling. Um, it is to stand in intercession for the world that's around us. Okay. Um, that's the prayers. That, that is the most basic thing right there. Is this, and this is why it's, it's so often misunderstood, is that we think of prayer as kind of like someone at home sitting on their couch, you know, TV blaring in the background, and they're just sort of praying a little bit, and then, then they go back to what they were doing. No, when we speak of the prayers, we're speaking about liturgical prayer that's being offered by the church as a whole. Um, and this has been done for almost two centuries. Okay, not two centuries, 20 centuries, sorry, 20 centuries. Um, okay, following this pattern, I will be transformed. I love this. This, just, this word is huge. Let me, let me uh, say a little bit about transformation. Paul uses this word, transformation. Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? transformed by, I love, do not be con, he's playing around with words, do not be conformed, but be what? Transformed. Conformed means what? I'm going to be changed to be with something like the world. Transformed means what? Some, something else, right? Some made new, right? And in fact, the word that Paul uses is a great Greek word, it's anakinosis, and I love it because we don't have a word like it in English. It is to be renewed or restored to a higher state. So uh, several years ago, I got to renovate a kitchen. We bought a house, and I started immediately on renovating the kitchen. And we were going to do an Ikea kitchen, and it was always a dream of mine to do an Ikea kitchen, and we did. That house was built in 1977. What if I told you, I want to restore the kitchen to the way it was in 1977? 
I want green appliances. I want like linoleum floors with lots of green in them. And they were there under my brand new wood floors, right? They were, they're still there. You could look at it if you wanted. I want, man, I want a macrame hanging basket. You would be like, what is your deal? I mean, I get being retro, but that's crazy. <laughs> Nobody liked that. Maybe you did back then. What do I say? I'm renovating the kitchen. And you know what I mean immediately. You're like, stainless steel appliances, white cabinets. You know, it's going to look cool. You know immediately what I mean. Subway tile backsplash. And you know what? You already imagined exactly what my kitchen looked like. Because I renovated it. Now, I'm saying this because the work that God wants to do in your life is not to restore you to the state that you were just before you were a sinner because there ain't no such thing. He also doesn't want to restore you to the state as a human body that we were in Eden. Because how good was that, really? The answer is not, not really. I mean, it was good, but it wasn't great. Do you see how the salvation that we receive in Christ is so far better than that which Adam and Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden? This is, this is the gospel, to be, to be renovated, to be transformed. Um, and I, I want to say this as well. The wonderful thing about the Christian life is just when you think, I've arrived. Like, man, this is so good and so rich. What happens? There's always more. There's always more. God saves the best for last. He, uh, he, he pours out abundance. If God is an unfathomable depth, do, do, you, do you know Him in the basics? Yes, of course. We want to say that strongly. Yes, of course. But you also know Him in the depths. Um, so I want to put that in front of you. Um, how does this life of transformation happen? Well, it happens first within the life of the church. So there is no such thing as a, uh, as a free-range Christian. There are free-range chickens, but not free-range Christians. Um, I remember once uh, I was sitting in a, in a auto shop having my oil changed, and uh, and the uh, the woman wor- or the, the the woman working there was having a conversation with this guy who was standing there, and he told her about uh, being in a terrible car accident, and being in a coma for three years of his life, and when he emerged from the coma, he had emerged having had this wonderful. Um, I mean, God spoke to him as he was in the coma. And he came out a transformed guy. And I was like, man, this is amazing. What a cool story. Like he was in a coma for three years. And God spoke to him in the midst of that coma. I'm like, wow. He came out just completely transformed. He's telling the guy, he, you know, he couldn't hold it in. He had to tell the, he had to tell the uh, oil change attendant you know, all about how God had worked in his life. And I was like, this is so awesome, listening to this great testimony. And what did this woman ask him? She said, so, so where do you go to church? She was really interested. Like, where do you go to church? And he said, did you hear a word I just told you? I didn't join a church. God spoke to me. There's no church. I was like, crap. That was, I, I think I said it loudly enough for him to hear it. Because <laughs> I was like so mad. Like, oh, really? I mean, wonderful that God spoke to him. But you see, it was such a personalized experience that nobody else could have it. And that's sad because that's not what God has given in Christ. She asked him, where do you go to church? Because she wanted to be at his church. Listen, this is all the more true when it comes to things like evangelism. Do we go fishing with rods and reels and poles and all that? Like I, I like fly fishing. I aspire to be one someday. But is that it? No, no, the church is a net, and in it gets caught up all manner of fish. So, so the church is important. It really is important. Um, I, listen, I can't be transformed in the image of Christ alone. Like, I thank God every day for Father Canary and Father Crucy and my bishop and Father Autry. And I'm like, man, I, I'd be dead in the water without these guys. Dead in the water. Like, there's a ministry they have to me that you don't see all the time, but it is there. What would I do without a bishop? God, I'd be a mess. But you see how it works? 
I have a pastor. Why do I have a pastor in the bishop? Because there are no free-range Christians. I have a pastor, so you can have a pastor. I can't be a pastor unless I have one myself. Okay, so I'm just going on. All right. Let me just, and again, I mean this in total charity. I don't know how free church evangelicals do it. I really don't. I'm like, I don't know how you live without having someone in authority over you. I couldn't do it. So there it is. All right. What does the church do? Okay. So, so we can ask what the church is. The church is the body of Christ. We should also ask, what does the church do? And Anglicans have an answer for this. The church is that place where the gospel is truly preached and the sacraments validly administered. Word and sacrament makes the church. So what do we do on a Sunday? First part of the service is what? Yeah, liturgy of the word. We, we read scripture and somebody preaches on it, sometimes badly, sometimes well, sometimes really well. I think here at Christ Church we have wonderful preaching. I'm really glad of that. That's a big thing. Um, but, but why? Because engagement in scripture builds up the church. Okay. On the other end, receiving the sacraments. Um, we not only receive God's Word, but we receive His life. Um, and, and this happens sacramentally. Um, so when you're looking for the identity of the church, just think Word and Sacrament, Word and Sacrament, Word and Sacrament. The church is formed and forged through Word and Sacrament. Um, that's why it's so, you know, I just say, it's so scandalous when churches run from Word and Sacrament, one or the other. Like either they run from Sacrament or run from the Word, and it's, it's like... All you're left with is kind of like pop psychology with a veneer of social work and maybe some nice music. That's it. Like, without word and sacrament, the church is not who she is. She's doing something else. I don't know what, but she's not being the church without word and sacrament. That's why in the center of our liturgy, it's two liturgies, liturgy of the word, liturgy of the table, this is, this is who we are. It forms us to be who we are, a people who are formed upon Scripture and a people who are formed upon Jesus Christ giving himself to us right? as we give ourselves to him. Right? Okay, so if you want to know the basics of like how we worship, that's it. Like That's Anglican liturgy. It's actually Christian liturgy in a nutshell. Okay? Through worship and prayer in every age, the church has either made worship and prayer a priority and thrived like crazy, or the church has said, eh, maybe worship and prayer aren't that important. And then has been like, bup, 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 bup. kind of like the jalopy car that you know uh, often appears in movies that never gets anywhere, always, always breaking down. You know, that's a, ch- a church that's not formed in worship and prayer is gonna is gonna fall in on itself. Um, the the priority of the church, always, always, is worship and prayer. Along with proclamation of the gospel and the proclamation of the word and, 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 uh, and the breaking of bread. This means that, uh, and I, I have to say this strongly, it means that certain forms of activism have to take a back seat to the life of worship and prayer. Anytime we put the active life or activism above worship and prayer, what happens? Our priorities get out of whack. And we actually start to think that we are the salvation of the world. But as long as worship and prayer are prime, as long as the teaching of Scripture, and as long as the, teach, and as long as the administration of the sacraments are prime, what happens? We're formed in the exact opposite of that, which is not that we are the salvation of the world, but that God is the salvation of the world. Um, and that's a message we need very much today. And through fellowship with God's people and loving witness to the world, those are the last things, right? Why are they? They're listed last because they're not the priority that the others are. But I will say this fellowship of the church without the primacy of worship and the primacy of the sacraments and the primacy of the teaching of Scripture and without the primacy of prayer, what happens to the fellowship of the church? It, it becomes a club, a kind of country club. Often worse than that, it gets very unhealthy. Very, very, very unhealthy. Because the leaders of the church start to say, hmm, well, so our purpose is to make everybody happy, right? Like to help everybody feel good about things. 
our, our, our job is to serve others. Okay. But, you know, worship, you know, whatever. It doesn't really matter that much. Um, I, once, I once served a church that, that presented me with their mission statement. It was to serve the spiritual needs of the county. And I was like, first thing that's got to go is your mission statement. It's terrible. Like, well, it's terrible about it. It, said, it says nothing about worship. It says nothing about, uh, about, about, um, about the sacraments. It says nothing about faithful preaching and teaching. It doesn't say anything about that. It says spiritual needs. Well, what's that? I mean, I guess the Buddhists can do that. Um, there's nothing unique about it. So we changed it. Um, and, and it was a very long slog towards health. But health started to come back. Um, churches have to make, have to be, have to have. The, 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 the overarching interest in the church has to be worship and prayer and study of Scripture and teaching and, and the Eucharist. Word and sacrament. Um, if you want to hang your hat, that's where you hang it, okay, every time. Um, that's where I hang my hat, right? Um, this is why our, our mission statement at Christ Church, just to kind of go a little bit into that, um, because I'm going to have to close up here, is to build up the church and make disciples. What builds up the church? Her worshiping life, the life of teaching and preaching and all of that builds up the church. The life of Christians loving one another in healthy ways. That builds up the church. I love what Paul says. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to do what? Excel in building up the church. That is, that is a completely foreign idea today, that we would strive to build up the church so that manifestations of the Holy Spirit could be among us. But that's how it works. Because, listen, I'm going on a rant here, but I'm preaching now, so you got it. Um, the work of the Holy Spirit is not to sow discord and ecstasy. The work of the Holy Spirit is to draw us to, to Jesus Christ, to transform us. Um, and, and if we're eager for that, if we're eager for that kind of transformation, then we'll strive to build up the body of Christ. Um, so I want you to hear that, that, that um, probably in the, in the blood of the culture of Christ Church is this culture of build one another up, worship is first, the sacraments are first, um, everything else follows. Um, we don't seek to serve people in their, in their selfish whims. Not doing anybody good, any good there. Um, we seek to build up um, loving, mature Christians. And that's, that's what this catechesis thing is about. That's what catechesis is about. It's about building up that, that life of, of, of holiness. All right. So, to give you a little bit of intro to what we're going to be getting into in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the creeds. We're going to talk about Scripture and how we read Scripture. We're going to talk about the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about what it means for God to be called Father. This is all the beginning part of the creed, and it's a wonderful part of the, part of, uh, the catechetical exploration. Um, one of the things that I want to say uh, as we go forward is that this is the first thing, right? always first in catechesis, is teaching the creed. Um, some of you think you know what Christianity is all about. Catechesis is going is gonna, to is gonna mess you up a little bit. You'll start to be like, what? I didn't know that. And, and, but you'll start to see it. Um, and I'm excited for that. Some of you might be here having never, and this is so common these days, never had a, uh, a coherent, intentional instruction in Christian believing. I say that with sadness, okay? I really do but you've never sat in that thing. You've never just had a class where you talked about the basics of Christian believing. Because it was just sort of assumed, well, of course they know that. And it's, no, not really. I never did until I went to seminary have a, an intentional instruction in Christian believing, and, and I really gave it to myself in a lot of ways. Um, so this is a huge opportunity. It's a massive opportunity. Um, I'm really glad to, to, to be able to do this with you. And uh, so we'll start up next week. But first, let's, let's pray the, the prayer at the end of this uh, first section together on page 27. Almighty God, you so love the world that you gave your only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of love by your Holy Spirit that we may delight in the inheritance that is ours as your sons and daughters and live to your praise and glory through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you all.
Uh, we'll convene back next week. We've had to push back the time for catechesis to 9.45, and we hope to wrap up by right at 9.35 uh, so that we can have time to, to prep for the next. Uh, um, and uh, it's kind of a loss that we're not having catechesis for an hour, but I think, I think 50 minutes is also a good time frame, and, uh, and it'll give you plenty of time. So, um, so keep that in mind. Um, as we go forward, I want to say a few things about catechesis. If you find yourself stuck at any point, and you just kind of like, I don't know what I think about that. That's super weird. Like, is Father Nelson being weird? Like, is, does he know? Does he like really know? And like, uh, can I really trust this? You know, uh, let me know that, that, that you're confused or that things aren't making sense or that you just need somebody to talk to. I'm happy to do that. Love to serve in that way. I'll set up a, see if he can set up a meeting with you and with me and uh, we can go over that. The other thing is, um, I, I tell people this and I'm very serious about it. Those of you who are in my class are really my primary pastoral responsibility. It's not to say the others can take a hike. It's just to say that, that if you are in the hospital or you're going through any kind of crisis, um, as, as new people around here, I want you to know you've got my ear and you've got my attention, and uh, so all of that is there. You can, you can call, actually, so the, the church phone number that's listed on the website and actually listed on Google actually just rings this phone. Um, and, and I've done that for a number of reasons, um, and, uh, and people are good not to abuse it, but, uh, but the reality of it is that, um, that, uh, that I, I desperately desire to be available to you um, at, at any need that you might have. So uh, keep that in mind. Even if you just want to be prayed for, or, um, you're going through something tough, and, and you just want me to know about it so I can pray for you, that's a huge thing. Um, part of catechesis is not just getting instruction. A lot of it is, is a kind of um, what, what one particular theologian that I just love uh, Aidan Kavanaugh says, did you, know Aiden, did you know Aiden Kavanaugh at any point? No, it's too bad. He was the dean of, of Yale Divinity School for a while. Um, he, he says that uh, catechesis is, um, is conversion therapy. So there are points along this, this route where you might find yourself in some kind of crisis uh, because it's just hard, you know, and, and it's not easy, and, and you need somebody to walk through it with you and, uh, and pray for you and, uh, and offer some counsel and some wisdom, and so... Uh, please know that. And, and one of the main things we really want people who've gone through catechesis to do is to gravitate towards ways of spiritual direction as well. So it might be time for that in your life, and I want to encourage you in that. So, um, so I'm happy to connect you in that regard. All right, we'll pick up next week. Thank you.